Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Typically, we have Amy on here on the front end. The next few weeks, uh, we're going to have things a little bit different. As you may have heard on last week's episode, Amy's taken the month of July off. She's got a new job over at the Summit Church. Excited for her. Uh, Sad to see her leave the executive committee, but also excited for her as she moves into the executive director of communications role over at the Summit Church. She's also on vacation the next couple of weeks, so we're doing things a little bit differently here on the podcast. We have pre-recorded this week in SBC History and the resources of the week for the month of July. So she'll be joining us a little bit later on the podcast. So you won't miss out on her entirely. But on the front end of the podcast, uh, we're going to be covering a little bit of news and then have an interview for you each and every week here in July. This week's interview with Ed Litton, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, elected just last month here in Nashville at the SBC annual meeting. Uh, But first, we do want to thank our sponsor here on the podcast each and every week, and that is Southwestern Seminary. This summer, Southwestern Seminary announced a new name and vision for their undergraduate college, Scarborough College, is now Texas Baptist College. We covered this just a couple of weeks ago on the podcast right before the annual meeting. Texas Baptist College exists to glorify God by providing trustworthy Christian higher education for more faithful kingdom service. Wherever God calls you, you can get the Christ-centered, scripture-driven, and student-focused education you need at Texas Baptist College. You can visit texasbaptist.com to find out more about texasbaptist.com. Exciting new venture over there at Southwestern. Uh, Ben Skog leading that as the dean over at Texas Baptist College. Uh, Congratulations to them on kind of the new rebrand over there by our friends at Southwestern Seminary. But do check them out over at texasbaptist.com. All right, that brings us to our news of the week. The major news around the SBC this week included some sermon similarities between Ed Litton and former SBC president J.D. Greer, around some sermons in Romans. And we have Ed on the podcast to address the issue. All right, joining us today here on SBC This Week, as we mentioned, is Ed Litton, the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention and also the pastor at Redemption Church in Mobile, Alabama. Ed, thanks for joining us today, man. Hey, Jonathan. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I love your show, and, I, and I'm honored to be on. So, so would you consider yourself a friend of the pod, possibly? Oh, absolutely. Oh, we listen excellent. all the time. Oh, I'm a well, nerd. That's I'm what I nerd. like to hear. I do. I'm, I'm a nerd for history, and uh, Amy's always bringing something I didn't know to the table. I enjoy well, that, go. too. She does. She does bring uh, that to the table. Absolutely. So we'll have that actually after we get done with the interview with you. We'll have the This Week in SBC History moment. So Amy will be joining us for that later. But uh, today it's you and me, and uh, you know a lot of things going on in the SBC. One of the big ones revolves around a statement that you made last week after a video popped up showing some similarities of a sermon that you'd preached uh, with that of J.D. Greer. And uh, and you released a statement last weekend, and, and I'm going to read a part of the statement, and we'll jump into the interview right out of that. But uh, like thousands of other Southern Baptist pastors, I labor every week preparing to stand in front of the congregation God has called me to serve. In preparation for our series on Romans, I use several resources to help me think through how to structure the series and how best to communicate the profound truths we encounter in these passages. Now, one of those resources you used, obviously, was a sermon series from 2019 by J.D. Greer. So I know a lot of people have read your statement and still a lot of questions out there. So sure. why we just start this, get, let you address that right out the gate. Yeah, no, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I stand by the statement. Um, it was a part of our study and it wasn't just one sermon. I mean, you can hear illustrations and different statements throughout uh, several of those sermons. And um had JD's permission, but encouragement. The other thing we did is I, as we were trying to outline the book of Romans, which is a challenge, uh, we, we finally looked at it and looked at what they had covered and felt like it was sufficient. And we also received permission to use 
the, the passages from week to week. And so that makes it look even more similar. But uh, what I'm stating is that, that we, did our, we did our Greek work, we did our commentary work, and, and, and then usually I'll have someone I listen to and I exercise when I'm doing something, traveling uh, to, to help reinforce and give me thoughts and creative ideas. Um, and there's a lot of reasons we do this. Um, in, in part, I do it to uh, stay fresh, listen to new voices. Sometimes I listen to older voices, but, but to help me communicate to my people um, the essence of what the Word of God is saying. Yeah, so I guess what you're kind of saying in essence is that the sermons from J.D. were just like another commentary for you in, in the preparation, that kind of thing. It, a lot of them I didn't really even listen. It, it, I would go straight to his written out notes that he provides. Okay. And so, yes, very much like a commentary in that sense. And, and you know what, you know, as well, uh, when you listen to R. Kent Hughes, or, or when you read R. Kent Hughes' commentaries and you listen to a sermon like on Gospel Coalition, you'll find that, that his commentaries are growing right out of that sermon work, yeah. which is understandable. Yeah. And Lifeway, I mean, there's a whole commentary series, that's exegetical sermon series, Danny Aiken, David Platt, Tony Marita, the general editors that. So, and we, um, and we use and, and I've got the Arkin so. Hughes Hebrews one sitting right here in front of me on my desk too. Right, right. So, and he's awesome. And in your answer, you mentioned we a lot. Uh, I know you talked about it in the statement, you employ a sermon team approach to help you collaboratively create these sermons. So can you right. talk to us, like, what does that look like at Redemption Church? Well, let me tell you why we started doing it. And it's one of the best things I've been a part of in a long time. We have a lot of young men on staff, and we have young people that feel a call, young men that feel a call to the Lord, and laymen in our church, to, at least on occasion, to preach the gospel. Um, and so our purpose was to raise up a new generation of gospel communicators and gospel preachers. And let me just break down the process for you real quick. Um, we start off annually with a retreat where we uh, prayerfully consider what we are preaching, where we're heading next. And this has been for years. Of course, I leave that because I've been there for 27 years. I know what we've preached in the past. Uh, we try to break down the text and work out exactly the weeks and put it on the calendar because we're, we're a multi-site church. Um, and then every week we have a we have a planning meeting. Now at that planning meeting, I I lead the planning meeting, but and it's based on the sermon's gonna be based on my work in the text. But when we get together, all the other parts of that team are also sometimes given separate commentaries to study, and they bring something to the table so that we're not an echo chamber. And we're looking at the text, we break it down. A lot of times we get out of that meeting with a very clear outline. And uh, so, or illustrations, and then we finish the rest of the week building that out for whoever the preachers are going to be. And again, I lead that process because I am discipling uh, young preachers. And, uh, and of course, you know, from all that people have assumed about this, that would people would say, "Don't disciple anymore because you're messed up." But the, but the reality is, uh, it is uh, it's a very effective way. And for me, it's been a, a powerful tool because I'm listening to other voices. Well, it looks like we have an audio issue here in the podcast. Dr. Linton's AirPods just died, folks. Uh, we're going to switch him over to some wired headphones. There you go. Now you got it. Now, you were talking about how this was a discipleship issue. The, the team approach allows you to disciple those on the team. The real motivation behind this was discipleship. It's, it's helping raise up a new generation of pastors and leaders who can communicate the gospel. And uh, it, it has had an extraordinary impact. And, and it, the reverse part for me is that it, it helps me keep my voice young and preaching too, because we're always trying to reach a new generation with the gospel. Um, and so 
it, uh, for us, it's been a very healthy process. And over the few years that we've done it, and I think we've been doing it about five or six years now, um, it's really improved the quality of preaching, especially among these, these young people. Very cool. We do, we do live preaching on our campuses. Yeah. So how many campuses are you guys at now? Just two? two. Okay. Mm-hmm. So live preaching in both places. That's correct. All right. So with all the discussion here, what's the impact been on, on you and maybe even Kathy? Well, I appreciate that question. Uh, what God has made very clear to us is that we are, according to Isaiah 48.10, in a refiner's fire. Malachi 3 tells us the same thing, that God is, uh, it doesn't matter where the heat's coming from, God being sovereign and intimately involved with our growth is helping us be refined. And, and I just want to say, I apologize to, to anybody who has been offended and rightly so and hurt and some of the things have been rep- represented in such a way, but I, I'm not denying that uh, that we borrowed these things. And and, and I, I want to say this too: I I'm asked by good people and good-willed people, um, why didn't you just credit JD? I want you to hear my heart. Uh, this is not an excuse or justification. Uh, I am sorry I did not. Um, I had a preaching professor in seminary that. Um, we would preach in front of, and he would evaluate us. And he was one of the kindest people I've ever met uh, for evaluating. But uh, a student got up, probably the smartest guy in the class, and every citation from ICC, Linsky, from any critical commentary, he he made the, the and, and any commentary, he cited all of them, and even his illustrations. He said, I got this from that book and a thousand illustrations or whatever. When he got finished, the professor very kindly said, that was a good sermon. But he said, I'm going to just tell you something. When a diamond miner goes looking for diamonds, he doesn't hold up the pick and the shovel. He holds up the diamond. Now, please hear my heart, Jonathan. Uh, I, I am not excusing myself or explaining. I'm just explaining my heart. I love my people, and I want them to see Jesus. He is the diamond. Um, this has opened my eyes, and it's opened concerns. And, and will I do it differently? I promise you I'm going to do it differently. And even my preaching team uh, was, has been uncomfortable for the last two weeks because we, we are engaging this subject. And I, they know what their pastor is going through. And they have, I'm sure, doubts. I know they do, doubts themselves. And we were able to talk out those things. And we're making this a growing experience because our God is a refiner. Now, another part of this has been the disappearance of some sermons from the internet, like right. the, you know, you you mentioned it. You had a statement that you put out talking about how there was a website issue. You guys are changing right. over website stuff. The elders put out a statement saying, "Hey, we put right. some of these down because we don't want our pastor being attacked unfairly and maligned online." Right. And a lot of people have said, "Well, those two statements can't live together. They they don't mesh." So, I mean, well, what's they your, actually your do take on that. Yeah, I understand why people think that, but they they actually do live together. Our elders and leaders made a decision to take down because. They felt uh, the the impact was that people were going in and they were pulling things out, they believe, out of context. And, and so the, to protect the church and the well-being of the church and their pastor, they said, we're pulling these down. Uh, but what they left was the last 18 months, which is all of all of 20 sermons and all of 21 sermons. And the, at the same time, over a month ago, we began a process of migration from our current host of our website to a brand new one. The new, the new website will go live at the end of this month, and it's going to be a leaner, slimmer, whole approach to everything. And uh, the simplicity is the rule that, that, that will ultimately only keep about a year and a half to two years 
on there at any given time. So the, both of those things are true. Both of those things are happening at the same time. You know, a lot of this, I think, has shown us really the hostility of the day uh, online, mm-hmm. both inside and outside of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, it, it's happening not just in our convention. It's happening in other conventions, other denominations. The PCA is going through theirs right now with right. their General Assembly right. in St. Louis. And we, we see it a lot, really, in secular politics. I mean, that, that's been like the last five or six years in secular politics. It's gotten to a point where it's almost unbearable. Uh, how do we... like? work with one another across these sides, so to speak. I put that in air quotes. Uh, but how, how can we see each other, you know, and, and really improve on this culture that seems to be driven by attack, 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 rather than grace and unity and mercy? Again, that's a great question. I, I'm going to say this. I, I applaud the people who are trying to do this. And there are good people trying to bring a civility to this on Twitter, other social media. We need to learn how to be civil in our conversation. Because, well, for a lot of reasons, because Christ commands it, but secondly, because the world is watching this. The hallmark of scriptural uh, debate conversation among believers is honor first, respect for one another, listening without condemnation, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We we need to assume the best of each other and leave room for repentance when there is a need for genuine repentance. Uh, The assumptions on each other's hearts are just wrong, and we need to humble ourselves at that. But we need to engage in hard conversations, but we, we have to develop the skills of being able to do so for, for two primary reasons. One is how we talk to our brothers and sisters reflects uh, Jesus and what he's doing in our hearts. But, but there is a public witness at stake. So I'm not saying we don't talk about hard things and we don't confront painful things, but I'm saying we do so with humility always aware that what people are watching, and it matters. People are watching us. And I see this more and more as I do um, media events or media conversations, especially of a secular nature. But uh, the hostility of the day seems to rule our culture. And I think it's impacting our dialogue within the body of Christ. How have you seen that maybe impact your church? You've been there 27 years. I, right. I know, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your your pastoring at Redemption Church there in Mobile. But how have you seen your church maybe work through maybe some of this hostility that maybe it's related to secular politics? That seems to be the the kind of the way it really creeps into the local church, I would think, uh, mm-hmm. especially in, in the South. Well, I think a lot of times we've we've realized our people, because we do talk about this, that there's a false narrative, uh, and in my particular case, it's about me that I, you know, I've been called woke. I've been called because of my work in racial reconciliation, and but they know it, and the people know it, and that's one of the reasons they stand behind me. Uh, it hasn't been 27 years of perfection; it's been 27 years of pain and suffering and difficulty together. But but what happens is people learn to trust, and that is a core issue here, and that's why this conversation is so important because we automatically are distrustful of each other, and especially if we're strangers to each other. And, and I will say this, though. This is what I love about Southern Baptist. When I was elected for the next day and a half, I would encounter people in the hallways, at lunch, at restaurants, but particular and at the convention event center, and people would walk up and say, I did not vote for you, but I love you and I'm praying for you. And, and to me, I tell that to the secular world. You need to understand that we are divided on many issues, but we're not divided in Christ. And, and if, we can, if we can return to that, I believe that God is glorified, and, and I believe that we will be a part of advancing his mission 
Amen. And one of the things you mentioned just a minute ago is the diversity and the, the work that you've done there in Mobile. A lot of that has to do with your work with the pledge group. So let, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about how you've seen Redemption Church change, how the pledge group really has changed you right. and your people. Right. Well, it, it, it began after Ferguson, and we realized that our city shared some similarities to St. Louis area, and especially Ferguson, and, and that we really had no community with each other across any racial lines. And, uh, and so it was just a group of pastors, leaders in our community that started meeting together. At first, we thought we could solve a problem. We realized this is a long-term wound and problem, and it takes a lot of intentionality. And so someone challenged us uh, from a group called Mission Mississippi, to, who's been 25 years of experience under their belt. They said, sit down, talk, be honest, transparent, become friends, learn to love each other the way Christ told us to love each other. That's what's been happening for the last seven and a half years. And relationships have been born. Crises have been navigated disagreements, honesty, all of that's on the table, but it's been led through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that binds us together. It's interesting, not a single time to critical race theory ever enter our conversations. And so our, the gospel brings a more powerful, a more salient answer to the problems of division at any level in marriage and in, in, in a convention of churches and in our individual churches and in our communities. And so we approach it through the gospel and it's forced us into his word. It's forced us to honor and respect one another uh, first and to listen to one another. If I'm talking, I'm not listening. Now, what would you say to maybe pastors that want to kind of mirror something like this in their own communities, their own church? One of the things I thought the convention did this year that was really quite exciting uh, is that they added a sixth point to uh, Ronnie Floyd's vision, which is a Southern, it should be Southern Baptist vision. I, I wholeheartedly approve. Ronnie has an amazing ability to to, to, to break things down in bite-sized chunks. And so he's done that for us, but they said, well, we got one on top of you on, on top of that. We're going to add these two things, deal with the issue of abuse, and then also seek racial reconciliation. One of the dreams I have, and, and one of the reasons I think God may have put me in this position for this time is that because, is because we, we've talked about this some, but we've, we've not let it get into our hearts to where we really reach out and start to develop relationships in our community realizing we can't reach our communities by ourselves. And as we cross lines, it's a little scary. I was intimidated at first. I was intimidated about being with other belief systems, other ideas. I was intimidated about, I didn't want to be called a bigot because my skin was white and, and, or because maybe I've got some deep stuff in my heart. But, but the truth was uh, that, that we all have things in our hearts that we have to process through. And, but the most important thing was listening and understanding what someone else is going through. Uh, you don't have to be woke. You don't have to be anything. You just have to have a compassionate heart. We're not talking about stuff that happened in 1919. I'm talking about people who 19 weeks ago were walking through something like this or 19 minutes ago have just gone through something like this. And, and it's wounds don't heal by themselves. They take intentionality. Yeah. One of the things you talked about there was directing the convention to deal with sex abuse. Now, another right. thing that happened at the annual meeting, and your basically your first big task as Southern yeah. Baptist president, is to name a task force to oversee the independent review of the executive committee's handling on reports of sexual abuse. So can you give us an update on that? Yeah, from the very beginning, I knew this was a strong statement the convention made. The vote was uh, very overwhelming and clear. And the direction of the convention is to do this independent of the executive committee. So from day one, this is what I've been working on. And we'll be revealing soon 
uh, the people that we have prayerfully sought. We've sought professionals. We've sought people who are respected uh, within our convention, states, states people, and and pastors. And so we're we're, we're going to present this, and uh, soon you'll hear about it. Of course, we have a thirty day mandate to do that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's got to be in by July the fifteenth, right? Right. Right. Okay. So uh, we'll just kind of keep our ears and eyes open for that, uh, like you said, but coming I, soon. But I am greatly encouraged by the response I'm getting of those that we're we're asking to serve in this area, that they are willing. They see the seriousness of this issue, and they see the enormity of the task, and, but they're willing to do it. And I'm, I'm grateful for Southern Baptists who are. Absolutely. So a couple of final questions here. Uh, as you start your tenure as Southern Baptist president, what, what really concerns you the most about where Southern Baptists are, maybe where we're headed? First of all, I, I think what I tell the secular press is when they focus on our division, I say, well, I understand we are very loud. We're the largest deliberative body in the world. And so when we talk, we talk loud. If you can get the microphone, anybody can talk. But, but what's interesting is when you listen to the convention, you really see that there is unity and purpose. Everybody got on a bus train or a plane and went back home to do what they've been doing. This weekend, pastors are going to faithfully bring the word of God, celebrate the love of this country, and at the same time, their focus isn't politics, it is Jesus. And, and so I bless everyone who is doing that this weekend and continues to labor. But, but we are about making disciples and getting this gospel to the nations. To me, that's a challenge every day for every one of us. But it's also the greatest blessing of being part of this convention. But we do have some challenges uh, for, 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 for thoughts and ideas that I, I'm concerned will cause us to drift further away from actually impacting the world with the gospel. And, and I think we have, to, we have to be honest about that. We have to wrestle through those things. And I'm grateful for the Baptist Faith and Message because it's sticky enough to hold a very diverse group of people together for the purpose of glorifying God by making disciples and going to the ends of the earth. Now, kind of on the flip side of that question, what excites you the most about leading Southern Baptist as president? I think at the core, that's who we are. I think at the core of our convention are people who choose, they're autonomous leaders, autonomous churches, but they choose to cooperate, sacrifice, and give. And, and the other thing that excites me is the potential, and I've heard this from many of our former presidents and our entity leaders, the potential of this denomination has never been fully realized, and I believe that God wants to draw this out of us. I'm also praying for revival in our hearts. I'm praying for us to, to get together and lay down our swords and, and talk honestly with God about what's in our hearts, that we would have a renewed commitment to the beauty and the glory of unity and cooperation, because we can do more together than partitioning off, causing division, and, and doing everything that stymies the gospel. If we could come together to pray together, and, and there's a thought process here that obviously I'm working on, a way for us to be able to do that in, in regions and, and to to really start to get before God, because what we need is not what our organization gives us. It's not the power of our purse. What we need is the Holy Spirit of God to pour out a fresh fire and a fresh anointing on us as we lift up the unsearchable riches of God's word. Well, thank you, Ed. We appreciate you taking the time this week. And uh, please say hey to Kathy for us. And also, if you get a chance, send me some Koneka sausage. Hey, listen, uh, Alabama has uh, some homegrown uh, sausage. A sausage is never fun to be watched being made, but it is good to eat. It's called Connecticut sausage, and I'll make sure you get some. All right. Well, sounds good. Well, thank you. Ed. It's good to talk to you today. 
and we wish you all the best in the future and looking forward to seeing you soon. All right, that was a great interview there with SBC President Ed Litton, and that's going to bring us to my favorite part of the week this week in SBC history. Amy, blow our minds. All right, we're going to go to 1979 to a survey. You know how I love this. I like to see where we were on things. Facts are our friends. This was a Gallup poll. And so it was a Gallup poll that was released just before Southern Baptist observed World Hunger Day. That was their the second annual World Hunger Day in the SBC. Um, so I guess I wonder if this was kind of a precursor to like the global hunger relief, you know, sort of yeah. thing. And yeah. so the survey indicated that Americans strongly support government efforts to alleviate world hunger. The American public didn't like fully get the extent of the hunger crisis and tends tended to overestimate all the number of government programs. So that's kind of interesting. Like they didn't actually get how bad it was. They actually thought that the U.S. government did more. But eight Americans in 10 favored either keeping them or even increasing them. And so Americans considered, it said they considered easing global hunger to be as important as national defense and farm price supports. So it was put out by the Presidential Commission on World Hunger. And I th- here's my guess. And it's an interesting thing that they put this in Baptist Press. Of course, this is right before World Hunger Day. But my guess is, if you really look back, this was something that was very important um, in the heart of President Jimmy Carter. You know who was there at the yeah. time, uh, but the Southern Baptist at that time, right? But this is showing like World Hunger Day had gotten very popular. There had been a uh, a huge increase in World Hunger offerings back then. There were strong resolutions on World Hunger at the seventy eight and seventy nine SBC annual meetings, and so it demonstrated not just. I mean, this kind of mirrored the. Uh, feeling of most Americans, eight out of 10, but Southern Baptists were very interested in this as well. And so uh, David Sapp, who was from the Christian Life Commission, had testified before the Presidential Commission on World Hunger, had really kind of been part of speaking out. So what it showed is that, you know, Americans still have some learning to do about it, but, uh, the, for example, they thought that the U.S. devoted more resources to foreign aid than any other country when, at that time, the U.S. ranked 13 out of 17 countries. But Wow. So, people still didn't quite understand what we did, but they felt like we should be doing it. And Southern Baptists were no exception to that. That was a big, a big interest. So, I think in some ways we still are because we, we talk about that a lot. Global hunger, hunger relief, of course, as you know, you and I, um, both talk about that every year here on the pod. Yeah. And we both participated in the, the global hunger relief. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Well, we did. We both gave. We did. We gave we, to the we, we global did, hunger relief. We, we did not participate. We participated we with our gifts. I wanted to just, yes. you know, I, 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 I was going to be clear before it was before it was over, but, um, but we gave, we gave and participated by what was it called? You could run from bed. I think run from bed. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. So that's definitely what I did. But it just demonstrates that you know this is something that we we talk about. We feel kind of 
almost accustomed to it. We're always talking about global hunger relief, but it was very much a fresh thing in the hearts of uh, Southern Baptists, and they were getting ready for World Hunger Day, and they were getting ready for World Hunger Day, and we're talking about it this week in SBC history. And I mean, this is still six years before Live Aid. I mean, Live Aid didn't come along until 1985. I mean, and that's kind of, I would say, people knew about world hunger. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we see this here. But it didn't really become, like, front of mind a reality, conscious, you know, reality to people. I don't think until around the mid-80s when you had Live Aid and you had these big fundraising things. And and that's when you started seeing those, those type of massive events and really countries coming together both in the governmental side and the 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 um secular side really right. just coming together and and doing this together and and really trying to to make this happen um from a, a government and non-governmental side of uh you know partnership that's right so the thing that really probably i remember being the first major thing you, you talked about live aid but also like we are the world was yeah. you know pointing out uh famine and uh, around the world. So it was very, very interesting, but that was definitely something in 79 that Southern Baptists were talking about. So, uh, yeah, we are the world also 1985, Amy. So yeah, I mean, it, 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 85 seemed like the big year. Everything kind of moved for world hunger. That's right. That, that seems like the, the pivotal year there and Southern Baptist kind of on the front end of that in 1979. So very cool. All right. That's going to bring us to our resources of the week. Amy, your resource of the week is. You won't be surprised by this. It is the Declaration of Independence. Oh, tis the season. Tis the season. So I just want to encourage everyone out there, get the Declaration of Independence, read it, maybe even read it out loud. That's what I like to do. Or have Amy read it out loud to you with the SoundCloud link I'll provide in the show notes. Yes, I'm aware that that's out there. You know what I hate about that when that pops up every year is that in that, I think it's about eight minutes. In that eight minutes, there's one part where I kind of like faltered or, or something, had a pause. Well, it you're, drove me you're crazy. always welcome to record it again, Amy, and I'll put it it's, out in it's all high good. definition. I want to be clear that I did not record that ever intending for that to happen. I sent it to Lizette Beard, now Lizette Dillinger, as, uh, as, as something for her. And then she shared it through SoundCloud and it kind of took on a life of its own. So, all right. Yep. Okay. Well, hey, I'm going to join you with my resource of the week, and it's going to be. I think we. This is like our July Fourth resources of the week every year. Yes. It's going to be a capital. Fourth. Absolutely, I knew that was coming. That's my favorite favorite thing on on the Fourth of July as well. So, uh, we might even do a little a uh, little tweeting of Capital Fourth. So yes, that's Alan Jackson this year. Amy. I'm pretty excited. Gladys Knight is part of the lineup as well. So are the Pips going to be there? Don't know. So yeah, yeah. Capital Fourth comes on PBS this weekend, obviously, and um, it's just a, a time-honored tradition here on the podcast. Uh, the Declaration of Independence and a Capital Fourth. That discussion happens every year on the podcast. That's so, right. Uh, I know we got a lot of friends of the pod who are right there with us and watch it every year, and uh, we're excited about that again this year as uh, the Capital Fourth uh, happening on a Sunday. So uh, kind of. L- get that Monday off after so we can stay up late. You can, you can record it and watch it two or three times. Amy, stay up late. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. 
Something like that. All right. Well, that's our show this week again. Thanks to Ed Litton for joining us. Thanks to Southwestern for sponsoring us each and every week here on the pod. Amy, I'll see you next week. See you next week. See you next week.